one announcement that I meant to have Pastor give just a few minutes ago, I forgot to, but uh, we have flyers for VBS. If you'd like to take some of those and hand them out to neighbors or uh, family or anything like that, uh, they are currently in my office. It will be difficult to find them uh, because I'm, I'm a mess. But if you would like some of them, uh, let me know, and I'm, I'm more than happy to give you a few to pass out. That would be terrific. We're going to be in the book of James, uh, like Pastor said. I'm very eager for this study for a few reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that when I went through James uh, as a high schooler, it had a, a profound impact on me. Uh, and I think simply that was just because it's a really practical book. Uh, it's it's really easy to, to think back and have instances of thinking through pieces of James that I still apply to my life daily now. Uh, and it's a, a, a very helpful book for life in Christ. Uh, a second reason that I'm really eager for this study is that I resonate with, with the author, with James, and some of his personality that we see come out in the book. Uh, a few things that I wanted us to know about his personality before, or about the author, really, before we get into the book of James, uh, I think will help us. Uh, it, it's always helpful for me to know where someone is coming from uh, when they're telling me something, just because it helps me have a little bit of a clearer picture into uh, their background and things that influence them. Uh, so we'll look at just a little bit about James, and then we'll continue into the study. There's little doubt, if any, that this book was named for and written by the half-brother James of Jesus Christ. There are several Jameses recorded in Scripture, but as one commentator writes, only two of them were prominent enough to have penned such an authoritative letter. Those two are James, the son of Zebedee, uh, one of them we, we would be familiar with. Uh, they call him the son of thunder, one of the sons of thunder. And the other was James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Since James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred before this book was written, that leaves James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. We see this James identified in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, when Mark records the family of Jesus. So verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Those who were offended in Mark chapter 6 were just people of Christ's own country. But we later see James himself rejecting Christ's deity in John 7, 5. John writes, neither did his brethren believe in him. However, we see some seriously stark contrast to this rejection, not only in the fact that James wrote a book included in our Bibles today, but also in the praise and recognition that he received from some of the other apostles. In Acts 12, 17, Peter, who had just escaped from prison, asked that the story of his release or his escape be relayed to James first of all. Paul later writes in Galatians that James seemed to be a pillar in the church and that he had very good fellowship with him. Uh, Peter and Paul, obviously, look, we look up to as pillars of the faith in their own right. Uh, and so for them to give such high praise of James uh, gives us confidence in what he's saying. So what caused the change from his rejection to now being a pillar uh, in the church and one that Peter respects highly? In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul tells us what caused the change. James had a physical interaction with the risen Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to James and then others of the apostles, and it changed James drastically, just similarly as spiritual interactions with the risen Christ today can change people drastically. The physical interaction, though, with Christ is what enables James to write so authoritatively. He saw in the flesh Jesus Christ risen from the dead, 
And he says a lot of things in this book, and he doesn't really say them in a questioning way. Uh, and part of that is because he spent time with Christ. In the book of James itself, we understand a little bit even more of who James was. One commentator tells us how James communicates. He says that James was devoted to righteousness and that he wrote with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the word of God. That is quite a statement. Uh, I, I would love for someone to say that about me. Another commentator tells us what he communicates to us. He says, James writes to correct Christians for their degeneracy in faith or their lack uh, in faith. To prevent the spreading of libertine doctrines, which are just doctrines that are going around without morals. There was nothing guiding them into righteousness. Uh, and he says those doctrines threaten the destruction of all practical godliness. And he also writes to support Christians in the way of their duty under the persecutions they might meet with. That's a long way of saying uh, that he corrected wrong teaching and he encouraged Christians who were dealing with persecution. Although James does teach us a few things that are not e necessarily easy to do or sometimes even just easy to understand, the main reason for this study, like I said a minute ago, is because of its simplistic, practical, and applicable instruction. All throughout God's word is truth that we can take, uh, we can learn, we can apply it to our lives. But because of James' unique background that includes rejecting Christ and then wholeheartedly going all in for Christ, he teaches us pointedly how to live an all-in-for-God lifestyle. You turn to the book of James. I don't have this verse up there, but we're going to start by just reading the introduction, the introductory verse, and then we'll pray uh, and begin. James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Let's pray and we'll continue. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time that we can gather together and we literally we can just hear from your word. Uh, we realize that your word has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Uh, and I personally believe that James does both of those things excellently. I pray that you would help us as we go through this study uh, to learn uh, much about who you are and about how we should act in our daily life. Uh, and I pray along with that that you would just uh, help me, even though you know I, I enjoy this book greatly, help me to, to speak in the spirit and not be driven by my flesh or anything else. I pray that there would be no distractions that would come in. Uh, I pray that we would just have a profitable time around your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. James starts off this letter very simply, uh, but it's an introduction that is absolutely crucial to understand if we want to if we want to understand this letter well. Notice first how James describes himself. He says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just discussed Peter's acceptance of James and how Paul had described him as a pillar. He could have listed his close association with the apostles on his resume, but he doesn't. He could have name-dropped those who he was close to, but he doesn't. He doesn't state his associations or credentials. He could also have described himself as James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I would take that fairly authoritatively uh, if, if someone were telling me, uh, something and they said, listen, I'm I am related to Jesus Christ himself. I would say, okay, I will sit and listen now, right? He could have said that and been fully within the truth, but he describes himself simply as a servant. He is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us all the authority that we'll ever need. 
if I am Zach, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm serving the, the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and ultimate judge of the world. Edward preached a wonderful message this morning that told us just pretty clearly who God was and who Jesus Christ was uh, and, and how we should interact with them and how we act based on who they are. But if I am Zach, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are still in your name, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need no other credentials. You have all the authority that you will ever need. Second, it's paramount to realize that he's writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered abroad. Like all of God's word, this book presents some challenges to our finite minds. There are things in God's word that we, we don't understand well, uh, and that's okay. But if we start thinking that the instruction in James is written to everyone as opposed to those who have put their faith in Christ, will lead to great confusion. Now that's not to say that an unsaved person can't benefit from this. The unbeliever, however, that's trying to implement things into his life that are taught in James is going to be especially frustrated and it's going to cause a lot of difficulty. So it's important, it, it's, I said it's paramount, that's a, probably a better word to use, uh, that we understand that James is writing to Christians, trying to help them with their walk after receiving Christ. With that simple introduction in mind, we'll continue right to James's encouragement that we see in verses 2 through 4. This is a very familiar passage, uh, but a wonderful one. James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Our Bible uses the word temptations, which is the right usage for this time, but maybe a word that might be more understandable to us today would be the word trials, or we could think of it maybe as a purifying circumstance. When we think of trials, we often think of monumental ordeals in which there is much grief and pain. Those monumental ordeals are definitely a part of the word trial, but trials here is much more inclusive than we realize. If we want to think of a, a, an accurate idea of the word trials, we could think simply of anything that breaks the pattern of true peace, comfort, joy, and happiness in our daily lives. It also has the idea of putting someone or something to the test with the purpose of discovering that person's nature or that thing's quality. Uh, similarly to the way that metal is tested before it's used for something very important or th things like that uh, would be a good way to think of it. It definitely, this word trials is, this word trials, excuse me, definitely includes the big things, but it also includes those little things that just frustrate our days. <coughs> I was going to ask uh, and see if you had any examples, but I thought it might just turn into like complaining about family and things like that. <laughs> so I came up with some examples of my own. When I was young, I remember one sibling, uh, I had three siblings, have three siblings. I remember one of them somehow managing to get all of us in trouble, and I promise it was not me. I'm the oldest, I am above that. We don't do that. If there are oldest in here, you, you can resonate very well. Or maybe as a parent, I don't understand this one yet, but I've heard it plenty of times. Maybe the kids haven't stopped fighting yet that particular day, and it's 7 p.m. That, that would be a frustrating circumstance. The one that uh, comes straight from my own heart, almost too clearly, being almost late, but you're making up time, and you pull up just as the light turns red because the car in front of you wants to be safe. That is a frustration of daily life. That is a purifying circumstance. I will tell you from my own, my own heart. Uh, I also.
also recently have lost air conditioning in my car, and this is not pitting Zach hour, but let me tell you, it is warm in my car right now. Uh, we have been driving Sarah's car around until I can get mine fixed, but uh, it has been a purifying situation for sure. Now, hopefully, we realize that I'm being a bit dramatic, uh, I'm being a little bit silly and ornery, but all of us have things in our lives that daily come up where we go, oh man, that just, that, it just, it got us just like that. And before we know it, we react wrongly and push us all out of sorts in just a moment. So James gives us three key words that we can know how best to deal with these trials as purifiers. You see on your sheet uh, that we're going to look at both of these, or excuse me, all three of these points in a pretty clear pattern. We're going to look at our mindset, what our action should be, and then the result of putting that action into effect. So our mindset for the first uh, part that he talks about, uh, we see that he says we should count it all joy. So our mindset should be one of joy. You say that sounds like a command, not a mindset. But that little word count is very, very important. It means to consider, reckon, or account and has a legal and economic connotation to it. It's something that has been considered done. Uh, something is paid in full. Uh, maybe if you're of an accounting mindset, you have accrued a certain uh, debt already, but you haven't necessarily paid for it. I know, Evan's smiling like a, like a nut right now. He loves that stuff, and I do too. But, uh, but that's kind of the idea. It's something that we have already considered. We reckon it to be done. We could interpret the phrase, count it joy, to say simply, decide to be joyful. Many Christians see that phrase, count it all joy, and we say it like this. Count it all joy. Or, or maybe maybe we say, count it all joy, right? And we kind of have that little bit of doubted wishing in our minds, right? I want to show you a little bit of what's wrong with that type of thinking of purifying situations that way. In Matthew 2, we have the story of the wise men looking for the young child who would save his people from their sins. The wise men come to Herod, and he's troubled, and he tries to deceive the wise men into telling him where the child is so that he can try to kill it. The wise men depart in verse 9, and we pick up there. I think we have a verse up there. There we go. It says, When they have heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That word joy at the end of the verse is the exact same word as the word joy that's used in our passage in James. Similarly, the word rejoice in that passage uh, is just a derivative of the word joy. It's just uh, an ex with some extra pieces if you want to think of it that way. That's a joy that is not counted all joy. It's, it's an excited, oh my word, the, the Messiah has come type of joy. Last week, Pastor preached a message also from Luke 15. And our word appears in that passage as well. Verse 7 of Luke 15 says that, uh, let's see, yes, likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons, which need no repentance. Pastor illustrated really well how excited heaven was when he screamed and woke us all up on Sunday morning. Uh, but the idea is there. It's the same, it's the same exact word. Uh, that little word joy is the same type of joy that James is talking about. So to count it all joy or count it all joy it is not true obedience to the word of God in our minds. We must have the mindset of true joyfulness. But how can we have true joy? It's one thing to just say we need to be joyful. And some people are really good at pasting it on. Uh, I, I've seen many, many people throughout my life uh, at my church 
that I grew up in and then at camp and then even here. Uh, and those people usually are joyful for moments uh, and maybe they're good at letting everyone see that they're joyful, but they're usually not joyful all the time and their families know that and that's difficult. The reason that we can have joy uh, excuse me, I lost my place here. We must have the mindset of true joyfulness. We can have true joy, uh, and Paul tells us how in 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul has just listed out all of these things that he and the other apostles suffered because of their association with Christ and their all-in attitude for Christ. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We sometimes read that verse and we think of the song, uh, I know whom I have believed, and it's a wonderful song. But we really do not live that verse out very well in our daily lives. If we truly can, are believing, like Paul said, that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day, then our lives should look drastically different. Because if we can trust God that he will keep our souls from hell and eternal death, then we certainly should be able to trust him for many, many other things, especially the commands that he gives us. <clears throat> we can have a mindset of true joyfulness if we know who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. And all of that we learn from God's word. Now, let me be the first to say this mindset of, of joy that James prescribes to us is not easy. Uh, it is not something that we can just decide one moment that we're going to be joyful for the rest of our lives and achieve. I would expect that none of us go around through life looking for, looking forward to and being excited for the frustrating and monumentally difficult times of life. But if we understand this passage rightly, James is telling us that we should be eager for difficult times and purifying moments. If heaven rejoices over one sinner coming uh, into the kingdom and the wise men are rejoicing over Jesus' birth, then that type of same joy is what we should have when we're going through difficult times. But that's one of the most challenging things to reconcile in our mind. Should I be praying for something hard to come then? Because that's what it seems like James is saying. I mean, if we're supposed to be that excited about it, then it seems like James is saying we should look forward to it eagerly. Should I be thankful when God brings difficult situations? It's, it's truly very difficult to know what we should do. As I sat in my office Wednesday preparing for this and thinking about the implications of just these few verses, it boggled my mind. And truthfully, it made me tear up because I want to have that idea of joyfulness and looking forward to God purifying me. But that's really hard to do. All I could do was ask God to help me to trust him and help me do the hard times in life with joy. Though that mindset is diff definitely difficult to obey and even understand in our minds, James gives us a clear path forward. He continues in verse 4 to say, let patience have her perfect work. So our action then is to be patient. It can be the most maddening thing in life for some people, myself for sure, to be told, be patient, wait a bit, it'll take some time. I, I like to make sure that we are always going somewhere and always accomplishing something. And when I have to sit back and just wait for something or maybe put it off till next year, that is not good. <laughs> that is a purifying situation in and of itself. But James tells us that this is how we accomplish that joy in our lives, is to be patient and let God control things. We've been impatient since the Garden of Eden. 
Eve and then Adam couldn't wait for the next thing when it was offered to them. The Israelites couldn't wait for a king in 1 Samuel. Today, children in the, in the children's class can't wait to be at the youth group. Teens can't wait for marriage and adult life. Young families can't wait for the weekend or the next vacation. And the rest can't wait to retire. It's true. I mean, all of us are impatient at our very core. What's wonderful, though, is that God knows that at that flawed center, we are impatient beings. So he gives us some of the most beautiful instructions all throughout his guidebook to wait on the Lord. Listen to just some of these passages. I jotted them down in your notes there. Psalm 27, verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 37, 9b says, Those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Proverbs 20, verse 22b says, But wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. And Isaiah 40, verse 31, a passage that probably many of us are familiar with. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I know that's a very encouraging verse, and we maybe throw it around a lot of times. But if we can understand this concept of just wait on the Lord, let him do what he wants to do in your life, let him accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life, and go through it with the mindset that I'm going to be joyful because he's using this to purify me, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the end of the equation right there. That's all you have to do. The clear path forward of counting it joy is just simply to accept whatever God brings your way to draw us closer to himself. We are not in control. And that's a good thing. Uh, if we were in control, it would be so stressful for us to you know, decide when the next tough thing would come. How do you perfectly plan that? You can't. Uh, there's never a good time for hard things to happen. What's wonderful is that we can just rest in God's plan. He tells us in Isaiah, that my plans are higher than your plans, and my ways are higher than your ways. He tells us in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God. I will take care of it all. I will lead you where you need to go. I will put you into the circumstance when you need to be into it. Just let me work. Rest in a good and loving God that has your best interest at heart. If we come through this and we get this mindset of counting it joy, and we just decide to be patient and rest and wait on the Lord, the result is wonderful, and James continues with that in verse 4. He says that we may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word perfect here means maturity or completion. Waiting on the Lord will make you into the fullness of who God wants you to be. Uh, the word potential is thrown a lot, around a lot today. We could say it simply, your Christian potential will be realized. You want to become the, the best version of you that you can be, not in a secular way, but in a spiritual way? Let God have his work in your life. Uh, and he will complete you into who he wants you to be. That idea of wanting nothing, uh, I think actually Brother Mike mentioned last Sunday evening. He said that instead of measuring wealth and riches in terms of what we have, we should measure it in terms of absence of want, the things that we don't need. We have what we need, and therefore we're happy. While God certainly takes care of his children physically, this statement of wanting nothing implies that we have everything that we need emotionally, spiritually, and mentally to get through any trial that we're facing. There's a stark contrast in the mature faith in verses 5 through 8 that leads us to our next point. I think we have these verses. We can read these together. James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. 
For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The problem for many of us is that we get into a trial, big or small, and the trial provides great opportunity for temptation. Think first of all what would be, uh, or what would be some temptations that come up during a season of a large trial in life. It could be the temptation to doubt God's goodness or His power. It could be the temptation to become self-focused during a hard time. It could be the temptation to turn to other things to distract you from dealing with the pain, or it could be the temptation, hopefully not, but simply to just give up on God. If we think also of some common temptations that would come up in the midst of daily small purifying circumstances, uh, like we mentioned being cut off in traffic or people acting in a way that hurtful to you or others, it could be the temptation to blow up and be full of anger. We could be tempted to say some form of corrupt communication. We could be tempted to hate or despise someone in our minds. James thankfully tells us what our mindset should be uh, by giving us two instructions. Those instructions are found in verses 5 through 8 that we just read. These instructions imply our weakness. The first one that he says uh, in verse 5 is, Any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Why is it that James has to write to us, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God? It's because when we have need, we're not even wise enough to know what will help us the most. Frequently we'll pray that God will deliver us from something or remove the trial, uh, and we'll, we'll speak more on that in just a moment. But James says, just go to God. Ask him for wisdom on how to deal with the daily things in life. And in so doing, you'll know how to deal with the big things in life as well. Amen. The second thing that he talks about is the double-minded or unstable man. He says that he's like a wave of the sea. A wave of the sea has no anchor. It has no guide. It has no reason for where it's going. It just goes. Literally translated from the Greek, this this idea of the double-minded or unstable mind implies having one's mind or soul divided between God and the world. Unfortunately, this man is one of the most common types of Christians in our world today. Recently, I've been reading a book uh, that's called Dedicated. It's not a ministerial or Christian book or anything like that, but just one that makes observations on culture. And uh, the author, Pete Davis, he, he goes through what he says, uh, he calls our culture infinite browsing mode. Uh, and it's very interesting, but he gives some helpful encouragement. He says this, When we spend our time frantically seeking out new experiences, we miss out on the deeper experiences that can only arise from sticking with something for a long time. Now again, Davis is writing with our culture and secular life in mind, but we do the same thing in our lives, and our lives actually mean something. We come up against a temptation that tests our devotion to God and His Word, and we decide to give Him once, twice, maybe again and again, and like a sin, uh, excuse me, then it suddenly becomes a sin that besets us. We realize that we're stuck in this lifestyle which attempts to conflate loving the world and our flesh, which are against God, but it tries to conflate it with loving God. To make matters worse, rather than living in the exciting, victorious, devoted to righteousness lifestyle, we teeter in no man's land. God gives us opportunity after opportunity for us to make a right decision and enjoy the life that devotion to Christ brings. But we keep God at arm's length, or else truly we just want what we want. The instability, anxiety, and difficulty of the life of one who is double-minded and unstable is not to be understated. Especially when you, we contrast it to 
what we see in verses 3 and 4 about being a complete, mature, patient Christian. Verse 7 makes it unmistakably clear when it says, Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. That is a tough statement to take. But, I mean, James tells us very clearly, that man should not expect to receive help from the Lord, either physically or spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you name it. Why would he? He can't make up his mind. God says, devote yourself to me. My, my yoke is easy. What we see here is a little bit of James's all-in personality. And if, again, this is one of those pieces that I resonate with mightily. From working at camp, working here, and watching friends of mine on various social media, I've seen uh, just a lot of people struggle with this, this double-minded, unstable mentality. But if I could make a personal plea to us, that are, those that are here tonight, don't float along hoping that you can please God and love the world. Yeah. In God's word itself, it tells us that the two are against each other. They are always at war. They are always fighting. It's a false hope to think that you can accomplish both, and the result of making that your lifestyle only ends with despair, frustration, and no clear basis for anything that you're doing. So if we continue, we want to understand how this mindset, I can tell you that the mindset was weakness. The mindset is weakness. <laughs> How does this mindset of weakness help anything? It's because it's what God wants us to realize about ourselves. Uh, if we want to think that we can act in our own strength, look no further than examples found all throughout God's word. Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses comes up to the rock, and instead of speaking to it like he was told, he strikes it. Uh, and in that moment, his life is crushed because he's not going to enter into the promised land. When Saul was waiting for Samuel to return so that they could make a sacrifice and hopefully win the war that they were fighting, Saul just took it upon himself and did it in his own strength, not trusting God's plan. And it ended with Saul's demise. Then Peter, later in the New Testament, promised Jesus Christ that he wouldn't let him die. He'd stick by him even if it meant his own death. Those examples should speak very loudly to us. There is no way that we can do things in our own strength if we would just go all in and devote ourselves to God. It makes life truly simpler. In the lead up to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul explains how he dealt with a physical weakness for some time and petitioned God to take it away. Paul writes in that verse, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we realize and embrace our weakness, the power of Christ shines into the world through our lives because we're totally dependent on him. I will tell you from personal testimony, there have been uh, more Sundays than I care to admit where I come in and I am exhausted. Uh, it's been a long week. Maybe we've done something with the team uh, and you know how that goes. But I come in on a Sunday and I know that I'm just absolutely wiped. Uh, actually, the week after the wilds was a perfect example. Sarah and I were exhausted. But we came in, we had prayed very purposely before coming in, and people remarked to us several times about how joyful we were that day. That did not come from us, because I did not feel joyful. Uh, my face might have been smiling, but my insides were not. And to see the power of Christ shine out in our lives, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't feel powerful in our own selves, uh, 
Christ. You really can see the power of Christ on us. So our mindset, or excuse me, once our mindset is one of human physical weakness, the action that must accompany that mindset is to accept the responsibility. There are a lot of people today that will say things like, old Satan just has it out for me right now, or God's testing me to see how I'll react. But James tells us very clearly who is at fault for our sin and what the action should be that follows realizing our weakness. Look down with me at verses 13 through 15. James writes, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James teaches us a really basic concept that we see flawed humans example from the beginning. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and both of them in turn blamed God. Adam blamed the woman whom God had given to him, and even blamed, excuse me, Eve blamed the sin on the serpent who had made her doubt God's goodness. In reality, Adam neglected his role to keep Eve God's commands, and Eve just wanted what she wanted. Matthew Henry writes this, Those who lay the blame of their sins either upon their constitution, their makeup, or upon their condition in the world, or who pretend they are under a fatal necessity of sinning, wrong God, as if he were the author of sin. I don't think any of us in here would say, yeah, I think God is the author of sin. Uh, and so if that's true, then we have to believe that what he says here in verse 15 is absolutely right. James tells us clearly how temptation happens. We are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. There's not a thing about Satan, the world, or God in that verse. If we want to think of it in a simple way, I think I put it in your notes. I did. Lust leads to sin, which leads to death. While we definitely shouldn't resign ourselves to just say, well, I'm a sinner after all. As Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 6, Accepting the responsibility of our own actions and shortcomings is very good for us. It makes us realize our guilt and the consequence that comes with breaking God's law. Or, if we want to put it short, it helps us realize our weakness. It should then guide us back to a restored relationship with God based on his everlasting promise to faithfully and justly forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The result that we see here is one of blessing and honor. Once we realize the wickedness that is in our flesh and work to keep us close to God, James tells us that we'll be blessed for enduring temptation. He tells us that in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. He also tells us that we'll receive the crown of life. We'll speak on that in just a second. If you need an example of blessing, look no further than Joseph. He had small and large purifying circumstances come up in his life almost daily. He could have responded in wrath. He could have been immoral. He could have had a heart of selfishness or vengeance many, many times. But he didn't. And because of that, everywhere he went and everything that he did was blessed. That sounds really good to me. I would love if everything I did and everywhere I went was just, there was like an aura coming from the sky. You know, that would be, that would be pretty cool. But, but truly, it says that everything that Joseph did was blessed. And that would be a wonderful thing to have said about us as well. Then he tells us that we'll receive the crown of life. We don't focus on this idea of receiving crowns in heaven often enough. 
But when we receive our crowns that we'll be able to cast at the feet of Almighty God, it's going to it's going to bring something that you will never know in this life ever. And, and truly, it will be something absolutely magnificent. I fear that we don't think about it often enough because it's not tangible. And so I think because of that, some of us, myself included, are missing out on great eternal rewards and blessings because you can't see it. But that crown of life is really, really important. 1 Peter 5, 4, 4 says that when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I was trying to figure out a way to make this crown of life a little bit more applicable to us today. Uh, and this is still an ancient example, but I think it's one that will help us. When Roman soldiers would return, return from triumph, their commanding general would receive and wear a crown made from laurel leaves, but only for that grand march that signified his return. The Roman soldiers would all receive more common crowns, but the honor and respect that they brought was nothing short of magnificent. If Roman soldiers were viewed with such honor and respect, imagine how much honor and respect a crown given to you by God Almighty will bring. But no, we'd rather focus on the little piddly things of our lives every day. Instead, what we should do is get to work on being all in, being a servant for the sovereign creator. The beautiful thing about God's word is that when we start obeying some of it in faith, you start obeying a lot of it pretty organically and because you start seeing the results. And there's a sense of stability that, that overwhelms you. Moving to this last point here, we look at trust. And this, I, I think, really comes in an organic way uh, once we start putting these first two ideas into practice. When we deal with temptations, having the right mindset, doing the right things, and seeing the right results, and similarly with trials. We'll not read all of these verses at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit into chapter 2, and then uh, we'll continue it next week. But I do want to walk quickly through just this idea that trust is fostered by dealing with daily trials and temptations. If we're going to be eager for the trials and terrifying circumstances, uh, then that trust is going to be built very quickly. James teaches us what our mindset should be at the end of chapter 1. If we can walk God's way through a hard time in life, we're going to start walking God's way in many areas of life because our mindset is one of acceptance. He says in uh, verse 21, Wherefore, or because of all these things that we've talked about, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's such a great phrase. Superfluity of naughtiness. It just, it's the stupid things that you, that you do wrong, uh, that I do wrong. I won't he says lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass for he beholdeth himself goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Again, that idea of blessing comes up. He tells us to lay apart or lay aside all of these things and to be doers of the word. I will tell you, you are being a doer of the word if you obey these first two ideas. If you can have a mindset of joy through trials, if you can be patient, it will accomplish a mature faith. 
And when you're acting out your mature faith, it's going to look like obedience to God. We'll start to recognize and cling to the things that God, God tells us in his word will guide us through trials and sustain us through temptations. Not even necessarily because we're just having blank faith anymore, but because we've had faith. We continue to have it, and now we're seeing it acted out. That realization in our minds leads us to action, which is obedience, as we read. Because we observe tangibly that God's word is true and that it works, <clears throat> we obey the simple commands put forth to us in Scripture. The result that stems from starting to put more and more of God's word into practice in our lives is what James describes in chapter 1, verse 27, as pure religion, which is that last point there for the result. We start controlling our tongue. Let's read this, actually, uh, quickly in... Uh, Verse 26 and 27. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Those things might seem really, really random, uh, but they actually teach us a valuable lesson. He says in verse 26 that the religious man truly will bridle his tongue. Uh, you'll start being able to control your tongue. You'll start seeing spiritual and physical needs that need to be met. And you'll keep yourself unspotted from the world simply because you have a close relationship to your loving Heavenly Father. The idea of pure religion uh, being to visit the fatherless and the widows. Uh, I read, or I may have listened to a sermon. Either way, I, it's not original to me. But they, they gave the idea that uh, fatherless and widows are one of the groups that you usually can expect to receive nothing back from. Yeah. And so going to visit them, going to spend time with them, going to pour into them, whether it be truly physically uh, or spiritually, shows your lack of self-focus. Yeah. And that is pure religion. Uh, he says also that it keeps oneself unspotted from the world. That alone is something we could spend probably a lot longer on uh, and something that we all struggle with, myself included. Our world is everywhere trying to grip us yeah. and because of our own lust that we just saw when we're enticed the world dra drags us right into it with it he gives the alternative to pure religion in the beginning of chapter 2 he gives the example of vainly giving honor to a certain person because of how they look or how they act the sad outcome then is realizing that your observations were complete garbage because you've gone the same foolish way as Adam and Eve and right. wanting to be like God you become judges, and that's not your place. That's not our place. He says literally that we become judges of evil thoughts in chapter 2, verse 4. So we've looked at two major pieces of the basics of our faith. I, I titled this back to the basics because God's word is much simpler than we make it out to be. And if we can just focus on dealing with the difficult things that come up every day, and the small trying things that come up every day, and we can deal with them in a way that glorifies him, a lot more of life is going to be much simpler. Regarding trials, to have the mindset of joy when we get into those monumentally painful or just plain old frustrating situations in the normal course of a day is difficult. But the reasons for joy, the patience that's accomplished in our lives, and the resulting mature faith that looks like deeper dependence on God's plan and trusting God's character is so worth it for life now and for life to come. 
then looking at temptations to have the mindset of weakness is not fun. No one, no one wants to look at themselves and go, man, I'm, I'm just a weak little piece of nothing. But we see it as a responsibility that we accept and a blessing of the crown of life that we'll receive because of that initial irritating mindset will someday bring us greater honor and respect even than the Roman soldiers did when they came back from conquering a nation. And it's simply just because we're going all in uh, on serving the King of Kings. God doesn't desire us to put ourselves in pain for his name or to try to save the whole world. All he does, or excuse me, all he desires, we saw this morning, is to have a contrite heart and to know him better every day. If we can know the basics of his holy word, put it into our minds, excuse me, and put it into our minds, we won't be able to do anything but obey because of its promised result. If we truly believe, if we truly understand what God's word is saying, it absolutely changes us. To close, I want to read a quote from a commentator regarding the importance of knowing what God's word says in order to live the kind of life that James has wondrously described to us. Uh, and if I, if I could, uh, I, I tell the teens frequently that if they want to see any spiritual growth in their lives, they're going to have to be in God's Word. Uh, and that is a plea that probably needs to be made every week uh, to all of us. We need to be in God's Word. Uh, this commentator describes it this way. He says, Do not wander from the Word of God and the accounts of Him you have there. Do not stray into erroneous opinions and go off from the standard of truth. The things which you have received from the Lord Jesus by the direction of his spirit are the things that will change our lives. Uh, it, it's very important for us to understand how God's word will transform us. Uh, and if we can grasp that, then going through trials and temptations is going to result in our trust because we see that he ultimately is the one that is at the, the heart of what we can trust in his character. Let's close in prayer.